I recently came across a website that was simply titled The Trouble with Being a Billionaire. I thought to myself, most people when reading that website title would ask themselves, what? How can you have trouble when you have that much money? That much going for you, so to speak. Most people would say, I thought they lived the good life. What would be the trouble with being a billionaire? Well, I found out in reading an article that they have a lot of problems. So-called friends who go after their money. Girlfriends or mates who want them just for their wealth and then leave them in the dust. And then there are those huge fluctuations that happen like in 2008 with the economy and their net worth. Billionaires, while they may be living what some people would call the good life, have lots of problems. German billionaire Adolf Merkel recently committed suicide after his wealth dropped in a short period of time from 12 billion to 9.2 billion. Now, we have no way of knowing what personal issues Mr. Merkel may have had in taking his own life, but the point is clear. The good life, apart from Jesus Christ, isn't that good at all. And today I'm here to share with you what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about the God life, which is so much better than anything that the world would call the good life. What all of us really need is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to live the God life. Jesus knows all about the God life because He is God. He lives the God life. He lived it while He was here on earth. And Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 record for us the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what this sermon is all about. The greatest sermon ever preached where we can learn about living the God life instead of the good life. I want to begin by introducing the Sermon on the Mount. It's very brief. The average reader can read the Sermon on the Mount in 15 minutes. My sermon will be a little bit longer than that this morning. And this series is 15 messages on one message, the Sermon on the Mount. In case you're wondering, the longest sermon ever preached was given by a pastor, Zach Zender, from Mount Dora, Florida. He set a record, according to Guinness Book of World Records, for preaching the longest sermon ever, 53 hours, 18 minutes. He did it by combining 45 sermons that he had preached that took him through the entire Bible. And in order to qualify for Guinness, he had to have at least 12 people seated there listening to his sermon for the whole 53 plus hours. Anyone want to volunteer for that? Not me. Jesus' sermon lasted 15 minutes. But what a powerful sermon it is. What a comprehensive message it is for us about living a life that honors God. The God life as described by the God-man himself. 
If you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, notice with me verse 1. And when he, that is Jesus, saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. There's an interesting expression there in the middle of verse 1, after he sat down. The rabbis, the Jewish teachers of Jesus' day, taught their students while they were walking and talking, but when they wanted to give more formal instruction, they would sit down, and their students would gather around them, either standing or sitting, and listen to the teaching of the rabbi. But Jesus is the real rabbi. Many of the rabbis of Jesus' day were only interested in acclamation from others, a pat on the back from others. They loved the title rabbi, or as the Jews would say, rabbi. In Matthew 23, verse 7, Jesus says this about them. They love respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called by men, rabbi. They just wanted the title. Now that's not true of every single person who served as a rabbi or teacher. But for many of them, that's all it was. That for them was the good life. I have a following. I have some listeners. I have some students. I'll take my time and teach, but what I really want is for them to come up and say, Good job, Rabbi. And I have to tell you, quite honestly, that sometimes those of us who preach from a pulpit in a modern church are looking for that same kind of pat on the back. We're looking for that same kind of recognition. Good job, Pastor. Nice sermon, Pastor. But what I really want us to get this morning is the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught like no one else ever taught. Turn over just for a moment to Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The final two verses of that chapter, verses 28 and 29. He has just finished his 15-minute sermon. And it says this, The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at His teaching. Why? For He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Rather than going into great detail about the authority of Jesus, we'll encounter that again and again in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to ask you and ask myself a question this morning. Here it is. Are we amazed at His teaching? Really, are we? Or is it just like when we pick up our Bibles, if we do, reading a novel, a fictional story, a history book off our library shelf? What is it for us? My prayer is that during the course of this year, especially as we spend time reading God's Word, learning how to have a quiet time that really impacts our lives, we will discover that His teaching is amazing. It's nothing like what mere men would teach. 
His amazing authority. It's just a a personal question for each of us. Am I amazed at His teaching? If I am, I want to get into it more and more and more as the days go by. As 2016 rolls on, if it does. So that's just a brief introduction to this message. Jesus gathered His disciples and others who were perhaps future disciples. And then it says in verse 2, He opening His mouth began to teach them. Opening His mouth, He began to teach them. Let's see what He taught. Because these first 12 verses are central to the whole sermon. They're really the groundwork for, the basis for the entire sermon that we'll consider over these next weeks. Jesus said to them, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I want to stop right there and take time with that first beatitude, as we call them. A beatitude is another word for a blessing. Some people interpret the expression blessed be or blessed are just with that word blessed and they leave it at that. But there's more to it than that. Some people uh, interpret that phrase to mean oh, the blessedness of the person who has poverty of spirit. Oh, the blessedness of The peacemaker, for example. I have another translation. Another interpretation. I think the word blessed used again and again in these opening verses should really mean, oh, the thrill of being poor in spirit. Now the world, looking for the good life, would look at that expression and say, what what are you talking about? Poor. Who wants to be poor? That's not what it's saying. Jesus on one occasion said, the poor you will always have with you. That's just a fact of life. But he's not talking here about someone who has little of this world's goods. Most of us in this room this morning are richer by far than the bulk of people living on planet earth. We're not poor in that sense. But what Jesus wants of His followers and what He knows is true of those who really are living the God life is that they are poor in spirit. If I were to try to illustrate this from Scripture, I think the best passage we could consider would be Luke chapter 18. The first four verses. I'm sorry, verses 10 through 14. Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. By the way, he was living what he would call the good life. He prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. I'm living the good life, he would say. 
But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That is what it means, I believe, according to Jesus, to be poor in spirit. It means to say to God and to mean it from my heart, God, I am the sinner. I don't deserve to have a relationship with You. I can't earn that kind of connection to You. There's nothing I could do in all of my so-called goodness to be right with You. Jesus said about that tax collector, this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he's talking about humility of spirit, not a bank account or the lack of it. Humility of spirit. This is the person who says, God, I need you. I need you every hour. So the thrill of being a person who's poor in spirit, the thrill of being a person who says, God, you're my everything. And I need you each day. I believe that this particular beatitude the thrill of being poor in spirit is the backdrop to the the other seven that come in succession. If we understand this one, we'll understand the others. All of them flow from this one. Much like, as some of you will remember, the statement Paul gives us in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, about the fruit of the Spirit. It starts with love. And then everything else flows from love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. In this case, everything flows from being poor in spirit. The whole sermon is wrapped around this beatitude. The entire three chapters will expand on these attitudes. Everything is vitally connected to this one. And it's all based on a vital personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By the sinner, the sinner, who recognizes that he cannot, she cannot save herself. No matter how good their good life is or was. So that's the beginning point. Oh, the thrill of being poor in spirit. The thrill of saying, God, you are my everything. Can you say that this morning? From your heart? Or are you still looking for even a slice of what the world calls the good life? You're wasting your time. your effort into knowing Jesus by effort I don't mean your good works 
I mean your study of what Jesus says is the God life. Secondly, oh, the thrill of those who mourn. When we read that word mourn, we know, of course, it's talking about a feeling of desperation, sorrow, maybe some tears. And we think, why would I want that? The reason is because that's a characteristic, an attitude of the person who is truly living the God life. Yes, it has to do with sorrow for our own sins. A sorrow that brings us to the place of repentance before God. A sorrow that says, God, I'm coming to you as the sinner and I receive your gift of eternal life and I thank you for it. It flows from being poor in spirit. But once we claim God's forgiveness, guess what? We don't have to mourn over that sinful state anymore. Amen? Now I'm clean. I'm forgiven. I have a new life in Jesus Christ. I can walk in fellowship with Him. But now, as a Christian, I confess any sin that I commit each day. And there's not one person in this room this morning who hasn't committed sin of some kind each day. We claim His forgiveness. It's already ours in Christ. But now we mourn about what's going on in our world. To me, that's really the essence of this second beatitude. It means that we turn to the only one who can solve the brokenness of our world. It means that we lift up our world to God and say, God, we want your kingdom to come. Your will to be done uh, on earth just like it is in heaven. We could put it this way. Blessed is the man who cares intensely for the suffering and sadness of the world. That kind of intense concern does not drive us to despair. It drives us to prayer. We ought to be praying about the problems of our world. Not worrying about them. Not stewing over them. But praying about them. Only God can solve the problems between Islamic fundamentalists and those who are not into Islam. Only God can solve the problems between a husband and a wife who are at odds with each other for whatever reason has come into their marriage. Only God can solve that. It's from the personal level to the national and corporate level. International level. To be driven to prayer is a good thing. Amen? To be driven to prayer. To recognize that only God can solve the world's problems is a good thing. And that's the heart, that's the soul of a person who's living the God life. A third beatitude is that that person is gentle. This particular word, sometimes translated meek, is a word for an animal 
that has accepted the control of its master. God is the ultimate animal whisperer. He's the one who can control us. He's the one who ought to control me instead of me controlling my own life. You see how these Beatitudes tie together? If I'm poor in spirit, it means I have at some point mourned over my sin. I've accepted God's forgiveness. He's the only one who can forgive me. And now I want to be a gentle person. I want to be under His control. He's my master. I'm His slave. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who captures a city. We could understand that to mean he who lets God rule his spirit is better than he who captures a city. To have that kind of gentleness means that I'm under control. So the problems of the world, while I have concern for them and sadness in my heart at times for them that drives me to prayer, I don't let that control me. I know God is in control. And then he speaks of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting. I doubt seriously that there is a single person in this room this morning who has hungered to the point of death. There are people in our world who die every day because of physical hunger. There are people who are so thirsty that they die because they can't get water. But he's talking here about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So the question is, how much do you want it? remember reading a long time ago about a, a student who came to his master and said, I want the kind of life that you're teaching, master. I want it. The master took him down to the river, walked out into the river, chest high. The master pushed the young man's face in the water and held it there and held it there and held it there. And finally released the young man. The young man said, why did you do that? And his response was, when you want what I'm teaching, like you wanted air just then, that's when you'll really experience the fullness of it. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying to us. When you really want righteousness to that degree, you'll find it. Now, what is he talking about when he's talking about righteousness here? You see, because the true child of God, the one who's already received Jesus as Savior and is seeking to live the God life, already has Christ's own righteousness given to him. That's a promise from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But the key is to continue to hunger and thirst for a righteous, 
pattern of living. That's what he's talking about here. I don't have to keep asking God for His righteousness. I already have that by faith in Jesus Christ. But I can hunger and thirst for a righteous life that pleases God. And the man or woman or boy or girl who really is seeking to live the God life instead of the good life wants righteousness more than they want money. They want righteousness more than they want fame. They want righteousness more than they want friendship. A righteous pattern of living every day. The next attitude is being merciful. This describes a person who is concerned for the feelings of others. Most of us, quite honestly, are so concerned with our own feelings and the problems or the pluses of life that have given us those emotions that we don't take to heart that there are others around us and all around the world who desperately need relief from their trouble. And that relief is only found in Jesus. That mercy is only found in Him and then by extension through those who say, I am living the God life. I will be merciful to other people. How are we doing it? Handling the feelings of others. Do we care how they feel? Does it bother us if they're down and discouraged and talking suicide? Does that concern us at all? Good questions to ask. And then comes this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. Oh, the thrill of being pure in heart. This word pure comes from a Greek word that means clean, like clothes washed in the laundry. It also referred sometimes to corn or wheat that was then sifted to take out all of the chaff and the, the bits of wood and pieces of junk that were in the pile. He's talking then really about having emotions from the heart that are unmixed, unadulterated, pure motives. I have to tell you this morning that pure motives, and I'm talking about my own life now, pure motives are sometimes hard to identify, even in ourselves. We think we have the purest of motives, but maybe we don't. And it's impossible not just unlikely, impossible to know the motives of other people. Am I right? There's no way I can know the motives of other people. I can only see their actions or hear their words. To have pure motives is a rare thing. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Purity of heart is to will one thing. To will one thing. What should that one thing be for the Christian? I think it should be to live the God life. A life that honors Him. Remember the story of Sisters Mary and Martha? 
when Jesus came to call, Martha was busy in the kitchen fixing a meal. Nothing wrong with that. But she was busy fixing a meal. She was a little bit upset, maybe peeved would be a better word, that her sister Mary was not helping. That Mary was just in the living room, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Him teach. And Jesus said to Martha as He chided her, Mary has chosen that one thing. Same expression as Soren Kierkegaard's definition. That one thing. Her heart was so pure that all she wanted was to listen to Jesus. That meant more to her than the details of preparing a meal. Pure in heart. Those who are pure in heart, who want one thing, the God life, are also, according to this uh, list of Beatitudes, peacemakers. We've probably heard the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. But that particular word and the Greek word for peace have the same idea. It's not an absence of trouble. It's not an absence of war. Instead, it's the presence of the God of peace in every situation we face. The person who is a peacemaker is more active than just a peace lover. There are a lot of people who carry banners in, in uh, uh, major cities around the world asking for peace and saying that they are peace lovers. But this is the person who is more active and who goes out of their way to bring warring people together. That's a huge calling, isn't it? Are there warring people in your family? Are there warring people in your neighborhood? People who aren't getting along with each other? Is there something between you and another person that you need to get settled? It's time to make peace. Just a couple of weeks ago, we reflected on this passage from Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where the angel said to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So we have to ask ourselves, if we're seeking to live the God life, do I want goodwill among men? Do I want people to get along with each other? And am I willing to do what I can to make peace? To bring that about. It might mean talking to a person about what's between us and getting it resolved as quickly as we can. It might mean that I'm calling someone on the phone or sending them a text message and saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you about that conflict between you and that other person. We're seeking to bring peace. Those who relish the peace of God and who are excited about having peace with God because of faith in the Lord Jesus 
are finally people who are at times persecuted, but they're excited to be able to be recognized as truly God-living people. It says, Blessed are they, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We need to understand, I think we already realize this, but it's good to reflect on the fact that righteousness, the God life, is not a sought-after commodity in today's world. And anybody who lives the righteous life, anybody who seeks to live the God life, is open to ridicule, mockery. Jesus talks about it here, doesn't he? Look again with me at that passage, verse 11. It says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you. When we think persecuted, we think about Christians who've had their heads removed by some terrorist group because they proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And there are such people. And I thank God that they're willing to go to that degree. But it also includes things like insults, according to this passage, who people who say all kinds of evil against you falsely. So living the God life means I may have to take some ridicule. It may mean that somebody's going to make fun of me. It, it comes out in, in very practical ways. Let me give just one, and we'll talk more about marriage later in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. But young people, I submit to you today that living the life of Jesus, the God life, includes living a life of moral purity. It includes being a virgin until the day you say yes in marriage to that other person and you become intimate with them. The world today does not think highly of virginity. But God does. And so if we're living the God life, we want to do what God wants, not what the world wants. And you may take some flack for it, young person. It's almost become uh, part of uh, a joking conversation. The 40-year-old virgin. Well, praise God if you've kept yourself pure all those years. And you've waited for that right person that God has for you. That's just one example of taking on persecution, insult, mocking, ridicule for the cause of Christ. No wonder Jesus told us in John 16, verse 33, In this world you will have tribulation, trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And here's the wonderful thing, and it leads to this invitation, the final part of our message. The wonderful thing is, we who know Jesus as Savior who are seeking to live the God life, we are overcomers already. I was hoping to hear an amen there. We are overcomers already. 
the Nike symbol that we see on clothing that many athletes wear and that we buy and wear is a Greek word for victory or conquering. And the God life is just that. One of victory in the here and now over what the world calls the good life. An ultimate victory over evil and sin and the master of the false good life, Satan. Romans 8.37, Jesus says, We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just squeak by. We don't just eke out a victory. We overwhelmingly conquer. So two things as we close. Number one, you are blessed if you know Jesus as Savior and are seeking to live the God life. You are blessed. That's the thrill of living the God life. And it's yours today if you'll just claim it. Twice in this passage, in the promises Jesus gives, He says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the rule of God over our lives. The kingdom of heaven is a somewhat generic term in the New Testament. And it's talking about God's present rule over our lives. Someday there will be an actual kingdom on earth that will last a thousand years. And there is always God's eternal kingdom over which He consistently and constantly rules. But this is talking about everyday life here on planet earth. It's possible to live kingdom living now. And that's what Jesus is talking about. I have a pastor friend named Jeff Mannion who wrote these words. To seek the kingdom of God is to seek the liberating, joy-filled, demanding rule and reign of Jesus in your life. That's the God life. To excitedly submit to the liberating, joy-filled, demanding rule of Jesus in your life. To let Him reign now as King. Not just someday, but now. So you are blessed. And secondly, our reward is great. He not only promises the kingdom of heaven, that rule of Christ in our lives now, the God life, but He promises heaven itself. Look at the end of the passage with me. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. There he's talking not about the kingdom rule of God, but the place where God dwells. The real heaven. And there is such a place. And we get to go there someday if we know Jesus as Savior. The first three questions in your application notes today under the heading Agreement ask, do I understand the difference between the God life and the good life? You need to ask yourself, do I, do I really get it? The second question is, how do I get the good life? And the answer to that one, I hope you understand, is by trusting Jesus as my Savior. Claiming forgiveness of sin. Admitting to God, I am the sinner. But Jesus died for my sins, for all of them. 
and I accept His free gift of salvation, eternal life now. And then the third question is, do I agree with God that the God life is way better than the good life? It is way better. Those rewards that are promised throughout these Beatitudes, those rewards that are poured out, are poured out on the person who is, first and foremost, poor in spirit. The person who says, I need God every moment of my life. We're going to sing a closing song this morning. I trust it will be your testimony. It's an old hymn. There's some great words. I need thee, not once in a while, but every hour. Would you stand and sing it with me?